Well, I want to invite you to open your Bibles to the book of Luke chapter 4. We are in a series in the book of Luke, and we're actually going to jump right into it. Uh, Just a few things uh, by way of reminder of of what we started last week. We talked a little bit about when we're reading the book of Luke, Luke is considered one of the four gospels or one of the good news of Jesus, four authors who wrote about Jesus. And Luke was... Uh, you could think of him as a very detailed historian, essentially. He starts off in Luke chapter 1, verse 1, and says, I've investigated all these matters. I talked to eyewitnesses. I wanted to make sure that I wrote down an accurate account of the life of Christ. And the theme throughout the book of Luke that, that Luke f- emphasizes is that the salvation of Jesus, Jesus comes as the Son of God, and it's for all people. There's a particular focus throughout the book of Luke that for all people this message is available if we could just um, believe in who Jesus is. And so that's the kind of the theme. And, and Luke also wrote the book of Acts, which is the history of the early church as well. So Luke has written more of the New Testament by volume than any other writer. So that's kind of a little bit of a little background on the book of Luke. Now last week we looked at the baptism of Jesus in, in chapter 3. And it was the beginning of Jesus's, what we know as the public ministry, that he was kind of through his baptism, he was affirmed uh, by God the Father, you are my son in whom I'm well pleased. And Jesus began now, his public ministry begins after that point. So in chapter 4, we're going to pick up of what happens right after the baptism of Jesus. And so we're going to jump right in. If you are new with scripture, uh, the book of Luke's about two-thirds of the way through your Bible. And uh, you are welcome to grab one in the back if you need a Bible, and that's our gift to you. And as always, you are more than welcome to use a digital version if you prefer on your tablet or phone. And now that fantasy football season's over, there'll be no judgment. We won't be wondering what you're actually doing. We'll trust that you're reading scripture when you look at that. So let's go to Luke chapter 4, and we're going to walk through it just kind of a few verses at a time and, and talk about it as we go. So as it starts, it says, Jesus was full of the Holy Spirit returned from the Jordan and was led around by the Spirit in the wilderness for 40 days, being tempted by the devil, and he ate nothing during those days. And when those days had ended, he became hungry. Maybe an understatement there, huh? So let's stop right there and just give a little context. So here's what's going on. Jesus was just baptized. His public ministry begins, and it says, led by the Spirit, empowered by the Spirit of God, the Son of God walks out into the wilderness and wanders around for 40 days. Now, anytime in Scripture, uh, you might be, if you're familiar with stories, maybe you've heard the number 40 from time to time. Uh, We know that it rained with Noah for 40 days and 40 nights. The Israelites went out into the desert and wandered for 40 years. And and we see this theme of 40 show up from time to time throughout Scripture. And from a Hebraic mindset, usually the number 40, or always the number 40, means a long and trying time. It's a period of testing. So whether it's 40 weeks, 40 days... 40 uh, years, whatever, it's, a, it's intended to be symbolic of you're going through a test, a long and trying time for a reason. And, and so Jesus now is heading out into the wilderness for 40 days. Now, where's the wilderness? It doesn't really matter where he actually was, but uh, the wilderness, uh, again, in Hebrew, is a word for desert. And so it, we know that it's probably somewhere, last week we talked about the region of the Jordan River near the Dead Sea is most likely the baptism spot. So he's probably wandering around in the desert there near the Dead Sea. In fact, to this day, outside of the town of Jericho, there is a a monastery that they believe is near the place where Jesus 
um, experience these temptations. Now, whether it's the actual place, we don't know, but we know it's in the desert. In fact, one thing I love, if you ever go to that place outside of Jericho where they say Jesus was tempted, there's a gift shop there that's called the Temptation Gift Shop, <laughs> which I just love the idea of a bunch of uh, pastor and his, his church going like, hey, let's go into the Temptation Gift Shop and see what they've got, <laughs> you know. I don't know. Okay, maybe that's only funny in my mind. So, um, <laughs> So, uh, it's somewhere in the desert, it's probably hot, it's probably miserable. And then Jesus fasts for 40 days. Now, another point of reference and just context, can someone go 40 days without eating? The answer is yes, you can. Biologically, you can make it 40 days. Um, you need water, so likely he was drinking water during that time. And uh, the act of fasting was intended to sacrifice something, and, and it was to turn your attention then every time you experience that hunger or whatever, it was either an act of worship, I will sacrifice this, but it was also used to remind you of your need for God or turn your attention to God. So even if you think of in the Catholic tradition or the liturgical church tradition, there's uh, the practice of Lent, which begins this Wednesday. And uh, Lent is a tradition where you go about 40 days. I think some traditions you get to take Sundays off and stuff like that, but um, it's 40 days, and it's, it's kind of based on this idea of fasting, giving something up. Now, it's become ritualistic that maybe doesn't have the meaning it should, but the whole point is that if you give something up, every time you crave that thing, it reminds you of your need for God, and it turns you to prayer, that you can say, God, I need you right now. This, this hunger or this desire for something that I'm giving up is reminding me that I need you, and so if you, and I challenge you, if you've never done that, you don't have to call it Lent if that's, if you're uncomfortable with that or if you grew up in that tradition, but if you want to give something up for 40 days that prepares our hearts for Easter, and it also, every time you kind of crave that thing, let it turn your heart towards prayer and remind you of, oh, I need a savior because look at, look at how I keep turning to these whatever desires they might be. Um, one year, I, my challenge was I just gave up 10 minutes of sleep a day and to get up 10 minutes earlier to focus that time on prayer. So it doesn't, I, and it also don't use it as like, some people are like, oh, I'm going to diet for 40 days. It'll be called Lent this year. Um, so um, it's intended to be a spiritual act of worship. So Jesus now is out in, the out in the desert being tempted and he's hungry after 40 days. Now, and then it says, the devil tempts him. Now, to me, that feels like this is kind of lowball here. I mean, this is kind of unfair. You're out in the desert, which I don't know about you, but I, I, I think being out in the desert, that was punishment enough. So I, I feel like I'm being, if I drive from here to Phoenix, I feel like that's a long and trying time going through the desert, and I don't see any vegetation, and I think that's a good time to be tempted. So you're, he's, Jesus is out in the desert. He's fasting for 40 days, and then it says the devil, or, or we call him Satan, appears to tempt him at that point, when he's maybe at his most vulnerable or weakest moment. It seems pretty unfair at that moment. Now, a couple questions before we get into the temptations. It's interesting that this story is about Jesus, and there's no one else around, so Jesus somehow decided it was important for him to communicate this story to his disciples and to others. There was nobody watching. There was no reporter like, oh, I'm going to see. This is how Jesus faced temptation. So Jesus went through this trial, and he conveyed it to others. So something about it meant that he wants us to learn something from it. So that's one. The other question is, uh, is in this, wh why did Jesus go through a temptation? I mean, he's the son of God. 
Why would even Satan mess with the Son of God? It seems to me like, why, you know, why is Jesus even putting up with this? Couldn't he have said right away, be way, be, get away from me, Satan. You know, I have no need for you here. But he goes through the, this process with him. And part of the thing is what we're going to look at today is there's two things. One, this story teaches us something about Jesus and the nature of God. So we want to find what is that that we learn. And two, it teaches us something about ourselves as we encounter temptations. What's actually at the heart of it? Um, and so that's what we're going to look at here. And, and another side note, by the way, if this is a unique story in Scripture where Jesus is being tempted by Satan himself. I want to make a statement. Biblically, theologically, we do not believe that Satan is omnipresent. He is not God. He is not om omnipotent. He's not all-powerful. He's not omniscient. He's not all-knowing. So it is very unlikely that m most of us will never have a direct interaction or temptation from Satan. We are living in a world where the spiritual forces of evil exist, but there is, you know, this is kind of like the big guy going against the big guy here in the world. So some of us think like, man, Satan's challenging me with this. Like, well, evil might be, but often let's, let's not have a false view and give Satan more power than he has. He is not omnipotent, omniscient, or omnipresent. Um, but he is here in this story speaking to Jesus. So let's get into the temptations and see what we can learn here. So back to Luke chapter 4, verse 3. At the end of the 40 days, Jesus became hungry, and the devil said to him, If you really are the Son of God, tell this stone to become bread. And Jesus answered him, It is written, Man shall not live on bread alone. Now, when we look at this, it, it appears at first that the temptation that Jesus is dealing with is that he's hungry, and he's being tempted to make food. That's at the base level, right? And if it was Satan tempting me after 40 days, that would be very effective. If I had the power to make food, and he said, you're hungry, make food, I'd be like, oh, okay, I'll do it. You know, that, I mean, that's like me at the end of four hours, I would face that temptation. But so, is Jesus really being tempted to make food here? Is it really that Satan is, is seeing like, hey, you're hungry, why don't you make some food for yourself? But to get to the nature of what he's asking, let's look at, break down what Satan's saying to him. The first thing is this. If you really are the Son of God, if this is really who you are, then do something miraculous. Do something special here. Make bread. Make these stones into bread. F feed your hunger. You're hungry. Well, you're the Son of God. You shouldn't be hungry. Come on, prove yourself if that's really who you are. Now, to really find out also at the heart of this temptation Jesus quotes a verse. He says, it is written. And anytime we get to scripture where it says, it is written, they are referring to another piece of scripture. So he says, it is written, man will not live on bread alone. Now, I want to give you a principle when you're reading your scripture, uh, the Bible throughout the week on your own, if you ever do that, and we encourage you to, is if you get to one of these that's quoted, it's useful to get the bigger context. It's, big, it's useful to say, is this the only thing that's in that verse that Jesus is quoting, or what's the bigger picture? And so I want to point to you, and I have it on the screen for you. Jesus is quoting Deuteronomy chapter 8, and in particular verses 2 and 3. And this is the context of what Jesus' response was. He says, you shall remember all, and this is speaking to the Israelites. This is uh, through Moses writing to the Israelites. And he says this, you shall remember all the ways 
which the Lord your God has led you into the wilderness these 40 years. So interesting that he's writing, this is, Jesus is quoting the verse when the Israelites were wandering in the desert for 40 years. So Jesus pulls out that verse. So you shall remember how God has led you in the wilderness these 40 years, that he might humble you, testing you. He humbled you and let you become hungry, and he fed you with manna that you might, he might make you understand that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by everything that proceeds out of the mouth of the Lord. Now what he's referring to is a story where the Israelites were in slavery in Egypt. They were led out of Egypt into the desert, and they wandered for 40 years in roughly the region of the Sinai Peninsula or even in uh, uh, this country of Jordan today, somewhere around there, it is this, let me tell you, it's basically like Palm Springs without the sprinklers. That's what all it is. It's just rocks and, and nothing else there. So they're wandering around there, and they, God led them out there, and obviously now there's a people group, and they needed food, so they had this miraculous thing happen every morning where manna showed up, and it's described as like little coriander seeds were on the ground every morning, and they ground up those seeds and made bread out of them. And so somehow every day they showed up and had what they needed. They had enough food every day. So Moses in, in Deuteronomy chapter 8 is reminding them, saying, hey, don't forget that God actually tested you for 40 years to humble you and to tell you, to teach you that man does not live on bread alone, but notice the next part of it. But by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of the Lord. And this would be the promises of God that are spoken or the power of God that is spoken. So man doesn't, it's not just your physical stuff in the world that you need, but actually what really sustains you and gives you life is what comes from God, what is spoken about you, what is promised to you, what is from the Father above. That's what, where life is found. And so now Jesus is being tempted, and notice now we go back to Jesus' temptation, and Satan says, if you really are the Son of God, if you really are to believe this, that what the Father says about you is true, then prove it. Prove it. He was questioning, do you really trust God's promises in your life? Do you really trust God the Father? You see, because in chapter 3, it ends with the Father saying, this is my Son in whom I am well pleased. So God spoke over Jesus and said, you are the Son. I am pleased with you. I'm pleased with your mission. I'm going with you. This is all about our plan from the beginning. So the promise was, this is your identity, Jesus. And Satan, the very next question is, prove it. Do you really trust what God the Father says to be true? Can you trust God's promises in this case? The question for us when we look at temptation is, often the source of it, one of the sources is, can we trust the promises of God? See, because the heart of sin is the idea that God cannot be trusted. So we take matters into our own hand. We, we cannot trust God maybe with our provision, or we do not trust that the ways of the Lord are the best way to live. So we try to take on a little bit else. We think, God, you know, a life of following you is great, but, you know, I'm going to take on maybe in my sexuality. I don't trust you with that. So I'm going to I'm going to seek after my own pleasure there because you're not good enough to trust. Your plan isn't good enough here. I'm going to trust you with most things, but not finances, because I don't trust you with that part of my life. And that's where greed comes in, or even, you know, if you have uh, faulty ethics at work, that's a, at the end of the day a lack of trust. Of saying, if I do this a little bit, I'll get ahead. I don't trust that God can get me there on his own. I don't trust that a way of following the Lord is enough for me, so I'm going to take a little. So the heart of sin is a lack of trust. 
in who, what God has for us, that he can't be trusted. It goes all the way back to, in Genesis chapter 3, there's a story of Adam and Eve, and it was the first man and woman, and when sin enters the story, it begins and God gives them everything that they need for life. They have peace with one another. They have peace with God. They have all the food they can eat. They, they're hanging out. They're walking around naked and unashamed. And I mean, that's like, well, how does it get better than any of that, of that? And then they say, Satan comes in and says, well, I think God's holding out on you. Are you sure that this is all there is? Maybe there's, I think he doesn't want you to eat from this one tree because he's holding out. Can you really trust him that this is enough? And we, being people, humans, say, oh, you might be right. What am I missing out on? See, sin began when we were unable to trust God and we wanted something more. We couldn't trust him, so we took matters into our own hands. So the first question is, do we trust God? I think of it this way. Um, one of my favorite people on earth is uh, my eight-year-old golden retriever. Um, <laughs> and I say people because if you know golden retrievers, they're not dogs. They're, they're somewhere in between. And, and, you know, every day I come home and the house can be in chaos, but he's sitting there waiting for me at the door, just wagging his tail with his golden retriever smile. And, and every morning you come down the stairs. He's getting older. He doesn't always lift up his head now, but at least his tail. Um, I can hear his smile when I come down the stairs. And he's always just this happy animal. But I remember when he was about a year old, we were living in our old house. We had about 1,000 square feet, two stories. So you can think of how compact our house was. And uh, one night, in the middle of the night, I hear a big clank downstairs. It sounded like it was coming from the kitchen, like a big sound. So I get up um, after I said, Sarah, go check out what that sound is. I'm not, <laughs> just kidding. So I got up and went and said, okay, what's going on? I walk downstairs, and my dog's not sleeping where he normally is sleeping. And I thought, oh, that's weird. So then I walked over into the kitchen. He's not in the kitchen either, but there was a loaf pan that was now turned upside down on the, next to the counter, but on the floor. And, and so I went over to it, like, that's strange. So I went over to it, and, and I picked it up. And the night before, my wife made this really great-smelling, tasting pumpkin bread. And um, she had it uh, cooling on the counter. And somehow in the middle of the night, the whole middle of it, the top, um, fell off somehow and disappeared. <laughs> and then it miraculously, like, popped up off the counter and fell on the floor. Because there was no one down there. There's no evidence of what happened. But immediately, obviously, I looked at it and I thought, okay, where's my dog? <laughs> because he, he smelled it. And I, and I went and I found him. We had a half bathroom downstairs. And he was literally, he's 100 pounds. I kid you not. He was behind the toilet in the half bathroom, <laughs> just sitting there like, I've been sleeping here all night. What are you doing? <laughs> and, and, you know, I told him, like, there was, were you in the kitchen? He said, no, but I heard a sound. What was, you know, I have these conversations with him from time to time. But one thing I love about dogs is that they, anyone have a dog that tells you when they did something wrong? Isn't that great? I love it. You open up that, the door to your house and they just sit there and they go like this immediately and you think, oh, now what? I got to go find what it is and you have them walk around with you until they won't go in the room. You go, ah, it's in there. So that's what he did. I said, come on, let's go to the kitchen. And he came behind me and we got near the kitchen. He just laid down like, no, I'm not going in there. There's something scary eating the pumpkin bread in there. <laughs> not going in. So I went in there and showed it to him, and he, you know, said he was sorry. He wouldn't do it again. And, uh, but as he got older, now we can set pumpkin bread out, and it's safe. 
Because what he learned to trust is that he, we will feed him, we will take care of him. We will provide what he needs. And so he doesn't touch it anymore, except that one time two years ago when he ate all the cupcakes that my wife made for the kid's birthday party at school. And um, all 25 cupcakes were eaten with the wrappers, so there was no evidence. <laughs> Until I took him for a walk. I'm like, oh! There's the cupcakes! <laughs> anyway, so... <laughs> did I just go there? Okay, so... Something to do with temptation, yes. So... <laughs> The point of it, at the heart of the matter, is this. He learned that he could trust us, that we will provide what he needs. He learned that it's okay, that I will have, he will not go hungry in my house. Now, he also learned when his mom's not around, he does get little tastes of people food from time to time as well. But if he never, if he couldn't trust us to provide what he needs, he would go and find it for himself. The heart of sin is, do we trust that God will su supply what we need? So the next question that Satan presents Jesus with is this. So Jesus gets out of that one. In verse 5, he said, Satan led him up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and in a moment of time. And the devil said to him, I will give you all this domain and all its glory, for it's been handed over to me, and I will give it to whomever I wish. Therefore, if you worship before me, this shall be yours. And Jesus answered, it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Now, again, what's the temptation here? Because here's Jesus who created the world and now Satan's saying, hey, you know, because for, for a time we believe that he's given free reign and dominion over the world. But so here's the temptation that on the surface it is. It's Jesus, I'll give you this whole world back. You can be king right now. But remember, the whole story of why Jesus came as man was to defeat sin and evil once and for all. Jesus came to live the perfect life that you and I couldn't live on our own. He came to be the perfect sacrifice for the sins of all mankind. He was crucified, buried, and he rose again, ensuring eternal and new life, new creation for all of us. That's what it meant in the life of Christ. That was his mission. That was his plan. Jesus knew the plan. And the plan was to defeat evil once and for all. So here's now Satan saying, hey, I tell you what. You want to you get rid of evil on the earth? You want to conquer it? I'll give it to you right now. I'll make you king over the earth right now. I have that authority, or at least he thought he did. Just I'll give it to you. I'll make it easy. You can have the crown without the cross, Jesus. Here you go. Now, I don't know the nature of how much Satan knew about the plan but I do know that he said, but he made it to come with a price. All you got to do is worship me. All you got to do is worship me. Now, again, a side note, theological note, seems interesting that the whole reason we believe theologically that Satan is who he is, that he's a fallen angel because he wanted the worship for himself. He wanted the worship that belonged to God, the Father, the Creator. He wanted that, so he is what we call a fallen angel said, no, you, you've rebelled against God. Interesting that now he's looking at God in flesh and saying, just worship me. He still wants to be worshipped. He still wants what's not his. And he thinks that he can tempt Satan, or Jesus with it. Saying, hey, you can do this the easy way. If you're king, anytime evil rises up, you can squash it right there. You can defeat it. Of course, it would all be very temporary. 
And it was outside of the plan of God. Look at the response of Jesus. He quotes Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 10 through 13. Again, I'll give you better or more context on the screen. So this, uh, this is, again, Moses writing to the Israelites. When it shall come about, when the Lord your God brings you into the land which he swore to your forefathers, watch yourself, that you do not forget the Lord who brought you from the land of Egypt out of slavery. You shall fear the Lord your God, and you shall worship him only. You see, the context of that is said, when you come out, you were in slavery. I've led you out of slavery. I'm leading, into, leading you into a land that is not your own, to live in houses that you did not build, to drink from wells that you did not dig, to enjoy life, and this is my plan for you. When you get there, don't forget just because now it's easier that my plan for you is, is insignificant. And you don't, do not forget this plan and start worshiping other things. I am with you in the desert and I am with you in the promised land. My plan for you is to take you from your slavery into freedom. I'm, I'm still the God in your freedom as I was in your slavery. I'm calling you out of this. Don't forget the Lord your God. This is my plan. So Jesus quotes this back to Satan when Satan says, hey, I, I don't know what you're here for, but I'll give you everything. Just worship me. And Jesus quotes this back as if to say, no, no, no. I trust the plans of God the Father. So the next question for us, do you trust God's plans? Temptation comes when we question and don't trust God and his plans in our lives. When we look and maybe we question God's timing. We say, God, come on, I, I, I'm, I'm following you, I'm trying to do what's right, I'm, I'm letting you live your life through me, and, and, but you know what, the one thing I want in my life is, is you know, I'd love to have a, a, a relationship with somebody, so it, it, can you make that person appear? Come on, I've been patient, I've been faithful. And I know for some of you single adults, we've had that conversation, that's a difficult one. It's difficult. When you keep saying, God... How long do I need to wait for you? That's tough. Can you trust God in the timing? Maybe some of you, as a, maybe a married couple, and you don't have kids of your own, and maybe you wanted to have kids, and, and it just hasn't happened, and you're saying, God, I, when will it happen? Can you trust God with the timing? That's a hard one. I get it. Maybe for some of you, it's a health issue or a relationship with a son or a, a daughter or your parents or a brother, or a sister, and you just say, God, how long do I need to wait? The heart of temptation sometimes is when we take matters into our own hands and we fail to trust God. And I know every circumstance is a little different and requires a set of wisdom, and that's why we don't want to be people who walk through life alone. Because it's good to have other people to walk with you and to speak wisdom into you and encouragement to you. That's why I'm so convinced that the church needs to be a place where we can have um, healthy relationships with people so that those who are single adults who are saying, I would love to be in a relationship, at least have intimate friendships with others. That's why it's so important that we are a loving community for all people. But so can we trust God's plans? And that's often his timing, his circumstances. I love the way Paul says it. He says, I've learned the secret to being content in every situation, whether I have a lot or whether I have a little. 
And the secret, he said, is I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. In other words, when my life is found in the, it, uh, wrapped up in Christ and I see that Jesus is enough for me, that gives me what I need, whether I'm wealthy or poor, whether I'm in prison or free, whether I have relational um, richness or relational poverty, I can find what I need is found in Christ. And the secret to contentment is finding my life wrapped up in the person of Jesus Christ and what he has for me. And for each one of us in here, that's challenging on different levels. It's challenging on all different levels. It might be just significant. Can I ever measure up? Oh, man, I just wish I could have more affirmation, or I wish my marriage could be better, or I wish my kids would. Whatever it is, those things we struggle with all the time. But Jesus responds. He says, Satan, you know what? God's plans, the plans of God the Father are enough. I'm not taking the crown without the cross. I'm, not, I'm trusting these plans, not yours. The third temptation is this. As he goes on and he says, uh, then he led him to Jerusalem and had him stand on the pinnacle of the temple, which probably is like the peak or the top of a t- the temple there. Um, they're thinking archaeologically, trying to figure out where it was. It doesn't matter. To the top of the temple. And he said to him, if you are the son of God, throw yourself down from here. For it is written, so here's Satan pulling out the Bible, (laughs) and he says, it's written, he will command his angels concerning you to guard you, and on their hands they will bear you up so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. And Jesus answered and said to them, it is said, it is also written, you shall not put the Lord your God to a test. So this is what's happening here is, that's uh, Psalm chapter 91, Satan's actually quoting it, which is often referred to as a messianic psalm about the Messiah. So Satan pulls that out and says, hey, you know what, throw yourself from the temple, prove that you're the Messiah. And why the temple? Why not a cliff out in the desert? Don't really know, probably because it would be a public space, that if he did that, then all of a sudden people would, it would be like a way of saying like, look, the Messiah really is here. So Satan wanted to test him on that, like, oh hey, go do this, go do this. But Jesus quotes and he says, don't put your Lord, your God to the test. So let's go back to Deuteronomy 6, verse 16. It says this, you shall not put the Lord, your God to the test as you tested him at Massa. Okay, so now if you read that verse, what might be the next thing we do? (laughs) Yeah, find out. Okay, that doesn't make any sense to me. I don't go through my life saying like, I'm not gonna test God like we did at Massa. Um, (laughs) So we want to find out what's Massa, what happened there. So we'll go back one more. Exodus chapter 17, verse 7. Moses named the place Massa, which meant test. Because they tested the Lord their God, saying, is the Lord among us or not? The test that they were putting to God was this. Are you really present with us? Because this is when they were led out of the desert. They just saw all this amazing miracles. They were in slavery. The Passover happens. They go through the Red Sea. They're wandering through the wilderness. They have manna every morning for breakfast. They have what they need. Now there's water. And he says, okay, strike this rock and water will flow. Now you have everything you want to drink. And they kept saying, like, I just, we just don't know if God's here. We don't know if he's present. Which to me seems, I just, I don't get it. But I'm sure we do that kind of stuff all the time in our own lives today. I mean, I'd like to think if I woke up every morning and went outside and there's like lucky charms on the lawn, I'd be like, man, God is good. This is awesome. Manna from heaven. And and, and so when we see that, to me, it's like, what what are they testing? But they're saying, yeah, we're not sure God's with us anymore. Why why would he be here out in the desert? Why would he do this? 
So they kept testing God, saying, let's just go back to Egypt. It's better there. Let's just go back to the life we used to have. Because it's hard. We've got to trust that God's here. We don't see him. So the question is, can we trust that God is present with us? Jesus looked back, and Satan was really saying, like, oh, if you're the Messiah and you throw yourself from the temple, if God's really with you, if you're really the Messiah, he'll catch you. And then everyone will say, oh, look, Jesus is the Messiah. Great. But Jesus said, no, 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 you're just testing. You want me to doubt whether the presence of God the Father is with you. You want to test whether we believe that God is in our midst. I'm not going to put the Lord my God to a test. I don't need, that's not the way we're doing it. And so the question is, do we trust that God is present in our lives? When we face temptations in our life, often it's a question of, God, are you with me and walking with me in this circumstance? And, and I'm not talking about the kind of uh, facing temptation like we teach sometimes with kids where it's like, what would you do if Jesus was in the room with you? You know, that kind of present, although that's a fair question. But it's not that. It's do you believe that God's walking with you through this? Do you believe that what's tempting you now is going to give you and fulfill you more than the presence of God? Do you believe that what you have isn't enough right now and so you want more? The question that Jesus responds to and says, you know, I'm not going to put the Lord and God to a test. I trust that he's here. What is it in your life? So as we respond, a few things, a few thoughts for us of how do we respond to this. I want to invite the worship team. They can start making their way up as we kind of wrap this up here. When we think of this, temptation... We often have the temptation to meet the needs with something other than God. That's what we're talking about. So what are we hoping to fulfill in our lives? I know for me, there's often times when I, when I think, okay, God, if you are really walking with me, how does that affect how I parent my kids? How does it affect how I respond to my wife? Am I looking for affirmation from her? Do I need her to fulfill me to a point where it's like, you know, you need to worship me and elevate me? Do I? Because often the heart of our conflicts as people is that we don't feel affirmed or loved enough by them. But that's usually in our head. I fortunately have a very, uh, I think, healthy marriage, so it's, uh, but that's the temptation often to want to be there and, and to be the Messiah for each other. That God, are you present in our marriage? When we go through a struggle, God, are you still present? What is it that makes me respond so negatively sometimes if someone criticizes me? Well, I think maybe I'm not meeting your needs enough. Maybe I'm not being God enough for you. And it reminds me to step back. Instead of taking matters into my own hands and say, God, I trust you. You're present with me. You got to be present with them. I can't be what they need to be. How is it that, where, where is it that you feel a struggle to trust God's presence in your life. And in all of these things, what I want to just encourage you with is the heart of this is we want to be people who are moving from unbelief towards belief. And as we talked about last week, this is not about moral conformity. This is not just about controlling a group of people to behave a certain way. This is about encouraging a group of people to find all we need in Christ. And when we find all we need in Christ, it transforms who we are. The heart of this temptation to Jesus was, at the core of it is, do you really believe God the Father? And so the question for us today 
is do we really believe God the Father? And notice how Jesus does this. One, he's led by the Spirit, which is a power we all have available to us to this day. I want to encourage you to start every day with this simple prayer. I've said it before. Lord Jesus, I can't do this today on my own. I need your Spirit to lead me. If you started every day like that, it really changes things. You can even get your coffee right after that. You can wait that long. (laughs) So Jesus is led by the Spirit. And the second thing is he knew Scripture. He kept going back to the promises and the character of God. But he knew it because he knew Scripture. I want to encourage you. Let's be people who are aware of what God tells us in his word. We can understand who he is. The more we understand this book. For some of you, reading scripture is tough. I get it. I want to encourage you. Just read one chapter from the book of Luke. Or one passage from the book of Luke every day. As we're going through it. So let's become acquainted with the ways of God. The more we learn about his character and his promises. We learn that he's enough. In every circumstance. So as we end here this time, I I think what a great way to end is we're ending with communion. And as we go, we have tables spread out throughout the room, and uh, we're going to encourage you to to take communion. And for us, uh, communion is we take the bread, which reminds us of the life of Christ that was lived for us, broken for us. And the blood of Christ reminds us of the covenant. From the death that he died, he promised that he will never leave us or forsake us, that his grace is enough for your sins yesterday, today, and forever. And so we take communion to remember this life of Christ. This whole story of the temptation, as we look at this, the whole story is centered on Jesus who was willing to go through this for you and for me. In fact, in Hebrews chapter 4, it says, we do not have a great high priest who can't sympathize with our weaknesses. He was tempted in every way, yet without sin. See, we can approach the table of communion because Jesus said, I've been through it. I get the temptation. I get the temptation to think that I'm not there. I get that it's hard to believe my promises. I get that. I get that there's things that will think you need, they'll tempt you to find fulfillment outside of me. I lived this life. I get it. But because he lived it and understands, we can approach the table with confidence, knowing that we'll find grace at the foot of the cross. So when we take communion today, it's just a reminder that his grace is enough for us. That because he went through this, he provided a way for you and for me. So we have two songs to end with. We want to encourage you to take communion um, at your own pace. And if you want to do it alone, you want to spread out around the room. If you want to just take it back to your seat, it's up to you during this time. But let's be people who reflect on how can we move to believe you more and more, that you're enough for us. So let's pray. God, we thank you for this time, and I thank you that you are enough, and Lord, you're enough and for my own significance in my own life, when sometimes I try to seek it in the affirmation of others, that you're enough in those moments. Lord, in the times when maybe we are tempted to find fulfillment in other things that are outside of your perfect plan for us, Lord, we want to grow in our belief that you'll be enough in those things. And God, I thank you that you also left us a promise knowing that there's times we are going to fall short, that we are going to fall into sin and temptation. But every single time, we will meet you in your grace. And your grace can't be outdone by our own weaknesses and failures. 
And so this morning, Lord, as we remember your, your life, your death, and your resurrection, Lord, let us remember that you did that all for us because of your great love. So we thank you and give you this time.